everybody, and welcome to Opera Off Stage. I'm Jesse, and I'm Michelle, and Happy Pride! Happy Pride! We are so excited to be doing another Pride episode, and we found some actually really, really interesting people to talk about today. I'm I'm actually so excited to share some of these stories with you guys. Yeah, so to celebrate Pride, if you guys have been with us for now, I guess a year, right, Jesse? Yeah, because we we have a Pride episode under our belt as a as podcasters. But this year, we are kind of diving into a couple more people that you guys should have on your radar. People who are both living and who have paved the way for you know future Prides and talking about their different accomplishments within music. We have a couple um, different music events and shows that you guys should definitely take some time to watch. And then some kind of grassroots creative companies that should also be on your radar. So we're giving you the in and out of what's going on in the opera world. And let's get to it. Which brings me to like a a really interesting person who I was recently introduced to the history of. This is a living composer, actually. Her name is Wendy Carlos, and she is credited with being one of the first popular musicians to use synth which now if you listen to any movies and tons of pop music like synthesizers are everywhere like they're huge and so you don't really think about the early life of the synth and you certainly don't think about the people who popularized it but wendy carlos is a trans woman who really wrote the first popular synth album i love this already so let's get into her history (laughs) Let's get into her history real quick. And I'll I'll give you a heads up. You may not know the name Wendy Carlos, but I guarantee you've heard her. So Ooh. she is a composer best known for her electronics, music, and film scores. She composed her first score at age 10. And when she was 14, she won a scholarship for building a computer. So that kind of gives you a, a quick idea of the mind of Wendy Carlos. She was 14 and she built a computer. And I'm so sorry. Wait, 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 wait. She's 14 and she built a computer in what? What, what, what is this? 19. 1953. This is back when computers were huge. Huge. They were massive machines. (laughs) What a baller. The first personal computer isn't introduced by IBM until the 1980s. So this machine she built, I tried to find a picture of it. I tried so hard. But I did look up what computers look like in 1953. And they are like well and truly massive. The one I saw looked like it was around six feet by two feet. Like a rectangle. They They were huge. This is not like... This is not like building a computer now, which is buying the correct parts and making sure they snap into place properly and making sure your cooling system doesn't leak. This is a massive undertaking at 14. (laughs) So she then goes on and she gets a degree in music and physics at Brown, which makes sense for someone who built a computer at age 14, (laughs) before she moves to New York in 1962 to study music and composition at Columbia. And during this time in Columbia, she also assists Leonard Bernstein in presenting an evening of electronic music at the Philharmonic. So not only is she going to eventually bring synths to the forefront, she also was, you know, she was out there helping uh, bring electronic music into common knowledge, working with Leonard Bernstein and his educational series, which I thought was just like the coolest thing. Like, honestly, you could just stop right here. I'm already so impressed. (laughs) We're already She's overwhelmed. She's already working with Lenny. Like, so sorry. Out there with Lenny, doing the good work. But she studies under Vladimir Yusashevsky and Otto Luning. And I apologize if I mispronounced either of those names. I'm trying my best. But uh, who were two pioneers of electronic music at the Columbia Princeton Electronic Music Center. And she was also simultaneously working as a recording and mastering engineer at Gotham Recording Studios until about... 1968, where she picks up a lot of the techniques that she would go on to use when she starts recording her own albums. Hmm. 
But while she was at Columbia, she meets a very important person, Robert Moog. Now, if you recognize the name Moog, it's because one of the most popular forms of synthesizers are called Moog synthesizers. And Moog is going to be the person who will eventually release the first commercially available synth. So she meets him at the Audio Engineering Society show, and she becomes a partner with him, and she offers advice and technical assistance in the development of the Moog synthesizer. Uh, essentially, she is helping create it and making sure that it is musician-friendly, which anyone who has ever used music technology can tell you is very important. Please consult your musicians when you create technology for us. <laughs> right? Wild. Okay. So this is a classic like keyboard synth, and she is essentially a consultant on its creation, right? Right. Which makes sense, as she will then go and take the Moog synth, and she creates her first very, very popular work, which is called Switched on Bach, oh? which is a Bach album played entirely on the Moog synth. I need to hear this immediately. <laughs> right? We did an unreleased YouTube video where we talked about remixes of classical pieces, and a lot of them were very bad. <laughs> so bad, you guys. Like, S- death to the ears. But bad. the thing you have to understand about this album and and she had recorded a couple albums before this. this is not her very first but this is close to her first one of her first major releases and it won three grammys i'm so sorry <laughs> yeah so hold on, hold on hold on hold on just just a quick recap three grammys in 1970 for switched on bach quick recap so as a kid she's building computers at 14 she studies music and physics at brown assists leonard bernstein literally advises the person who makes like the first like big commercial keyboard synth and then takes it does <laughs> makes an album called switched on bach and freaking gets three grammy awards yeah she had three grammys at age 31 goodbye <laughs> so sorry what yeah the album comes out in 1968 she gets those grammys in 1970 absolutely wild after that, she actually produces several more albums, which include more synthesized classical music. She did another one called Switched on Bach 2. She also has albums of experimental music and ambient music. And then ambient music comes back in when she starts to do film scoring. But she also did write an opera called Noah, which is a blend of orchestra and electronics. And that was a big thing for her is like, even though she obviously was deeply invested in electronic music and synthesizers, she really did love to write for combinations of acoustic instruments and electronic she liked the combination of the two oh. and i think that's just it's so fascinating to see someone with such a broad understanding of both electronics and music and how to combine them very cool but one of my favorite things that i learned about her is that in 1988 cbs records asked carlos to collaborate with weird al yankovic oh. to release a parody of peter and the wolf <laughs> i forgot about weird al Oh my gosh. And she agrees to do it because she wanted to, she says that she wanted to let her sense of humor out out of the cage. So Yankovic adapts the story and narrates it. And Carlos arranges the music with a MIDI orchestra, which was one of her first ventures using like using MIDI at all. Um, and the second side actually has an adaption of an adaptation of the Carnival of the Animals. Okay. Where Yankovic is providing funny poems uh, for each of the featured animals. And I just, I love that. And it actually got nominated for a Grammy Award for Best Album for Children in 1989. But I love that she collaborated with Weird Al Yankovic. Like, we talk, we had a mini-sode that we released about our favorite strange collaborations. And this would have been on there had I known about it. Because what an interesting and fun thing. Because I love the idea of Weird Al Yankovic taking classical pieces. But especially 
Peter and the Wolf and the Carnival of the Animals. So we'll also have to do a listening for that one. I am also today years old. I guess this isn't shocking news, but I didn't know that best album for children was a category for the Grammy Awards. So I (laughs) I am today years old. There are so many categories that I hear about and I'm like, oh, that is a thing. I had no idea we were ranking albums for kids. I love that. That makes sense to me, though. It it totally does. It's just not something you are thinking about. Because it's it's day. something that ne- wouldn't necessarily go over well in any other category. So you kind of need to have its own category for it. Yeah. Awesome. So, but I told you that if if you if you enjoy movies, you've probably heard Wendy Carlos's music, right? Okay. You're probably already pretty familiar with her work because she composed the score in 1982 for the original Tron with Disney. Oh my gosh. But she also composed the scores for Stanley Kubrick's A Clockwork Orange in 1971 and The Shining in 1980. Whoa, wait, she did The Shining? Mm Mm-hmm. That's sick. She didn't do all of The Shining because some of the music in there is already pre-existing that he used, but she, I believe she has at least two pieces that are uh, credited to her from The Shining. And Clockwork Orange is all her. And some classical pieces. That's really cool, though. I mean, obviously The Shining is like a huge, like film in film history so that's crazy yeah as is a clockwork orange and i think tron is especially interesting to me because of course that was like that is one of the first movies to i guess in my mind to to tackle a lot of the ideas of like a digital world so having someone who is one of the major composers with electronic instruments makes sense Mm -hmm. but yeah so i mention all of these dates very specifically because i think it's important to talk about the fact that like wendy carlos began living her life as a woman in 1968 prior to a lot of the major compositions that she put out now that doesn't mean she did all of her performances presenting as a woman because there are obvious safety issues but let's let's get into a little bit of that side of her history Mm -hmm. so Carlos actually recalls recognizing her gender dysphoria as early as like age five or six. Just, you know, this innate idea of like liking the way women look, long hair and like feminine clothing. And she talked actually about going on dates with women when she was at Brown and realizing that she was just so incredibly jealous of the girl she was on a date with. Mm hmm. But it isn't until 1966 that she reads a book by sexologist and transgender advocate Harry Benjamin called The Transsexual Phenomenon, and she begins counseling with him. And two years later, she begins hormone replacement therapy in 1968. Now, the major thing about that is in 1968, when she starts undergoing hormone replacement therapy and preparing to live openly as a woman, she also achieves major success with Switched on Bach. Oh. And she is going out and doing press for those events. And she recalls, like, crying before she went out to perform with the St. Louis Symphony Orchestra and wearing fake sideburns and a wig of men's hair and drawing on thicker eyebrows and facial hair to disguise herself as a man. Wow. Yeah, because I I can't imagine going through, like, early transition and also having to deal with a sudden immense popularity. And she also... Uh, did similar things when she met Stanley Kubrick for the first time and when she went on the Dick Cavett show in 1970, which is completely understandable. Like if you were, it takes time for stuff like that. It takes a long, long time. It is not in any sense immediate. Um, And we're also talking about the very early stages of people actually looking into and the medical science and the therapy that goes with it. Like this is early, early days. Yeah. Wow. So I can't imagine that immense pressure. Outside of some of those business dealings and things, she was living her life as a woman starting in about 1968. Okay. Yeah. But actually, the success of Switched on Bach allowed Carlos to 
pay for and undergo sexual reassignment surgery in 1972. So in the end, it was the success of that that also allowed her to to pursue other things, helped her feel more at home in her own body, which is wonderful. Oh, yay. Yeah. Though she did actually release two more albums under her dead name. She didn't actually fully disclose her transgender status in, until she did a series of interviews from 1978 to 1979 in Playboy magazine. And this is one of those funny things that people don't realize is that Playboy magazine actually used to publish a lot of like hard hitting articles. They used to publish like Ray Bradbury's short stories. They used to be like a major player in some like serious literary and journalistic ways. I've never opened one, so I couldn't say, but. <laughs> she first revealed her transgender status in 1978 and 1979 in Playboy, and she said later in a different interview of her transition, um, this was in 1985, the public turned out to be amazingly tolerant, or if you wish, indifferent. There had never been any need of this charade to have taken place. It had proven a monstrous waste of years of my life. And every release she does after that interview in Playboy was under the name Wendy Carlos. Hooray. Which is interesting, and I, I'm actually curious as to like the public reception of that because I think there are many people who may disagree with how they felt after they came out, but I'm glad. I'm glad that that was her experience coming out, that the people were both tolerant or maybe just indifferent, which maybe feels like the same thing. Yeah. Well, I mean, for this time period, and unfortunately, I think that's probably... A- that's about as good as it gets. Yeah, that's that's best case scenario. Yeah, but I still find it fascinating how much work she was already doing while presenting as a woman, even if it wasn't necessarily well-known at the time. At some point, her collaborators were obviously also aware. Yeah, go Wendy. Yeah, but once again, here is this very interesting figure of early synthesizers uh, and the popularization, because truly, like, I believe that that album she won a Grammy for was probably one of the first albums to be using synth in any major way, because that was just synth. (laughs) Yeah. That's super fascinating. Wow. How cool that her like studies in music and physics basically like were able to lead her down this like such a unique path. Yeah, because when I talk about two working on the synthesizer with Robert Moog, we're talking about someone who clearly had intense technical knowledge as well, having built a computer at age 14 in an era where computers were wild. Yeah. Yeah. And to just kind of be on the forefront as this technology is being available and, and being developed and then, you know, kind of having like that first insider opportunity to start working with it and then find like success pretty soon after and working with bernstein and kubrick and <laughs> weird al yankovic oh i mean it's just a, a fascinating history <laughs> weird al is by far the most prestigious weird al being the top of that list oh, clearly obviously <laughs> you know of those people i've listed the the only one who looks close to a classical composer is weird al yankovic with his long curly hair <laughs> Oh my god, I'm dying because I genuinely forgot about that. <laughs> Absolutely hilarious man. Where Where is he? What is he doing? Has he done anything recently? How are you doing, Weird Al? Hit us up. Weird Al, if you're <laughs> Come listening on the podcast. right now. Because of course you listen to our podcast. Check in with us, man. Send us a DM. <laughs> Weird Al, big fan of... Big fan. Big fan of your <laughs> classical works. Uh, oh goodness gracious um wow oh my god what a crazy story (laughs) what a crazy life that is so and i will say there is a biography that was published in 2020 about wendy carlos by amanda sewell Mm -hmm. the musicologist but wendy carlos herself has called it a misrepresentation and a work of fiction so i cannot recommend that i would recommend going to her website and watching interviews 
um, instead if you would like to know more about her. She is a living composer and she is still working. So you can definitely check out a lot of her works. Very cool. But I think it's also really important to talk about people who, with their coming out, who didn't have a an accepting or at best unconcerned public. Which leads me to another just really interesting figure to me, Black American composer Julius Eastman, who I had never heard about prior to this moment. Julius Eastman is a minimalist composer, pianist, vocalist, and dancer who collaborated with people like Meredith Monk and Pierre Boulez. Oh my god. And yet I have never heard his name before I started doing the research. (laughs) He, and also just something interesting about him, because, you know, a lot of times when we talk about these people, we talk about them having you know, started studying music fairly young. And he was surrounded by musicians in his family, but he actually didn't begin studying piano until 14, which is rather late in life Mm -hmm. in terms of a lot of musicians. But he made such incredible progress that he ended up getting his degree in piano composition at Curtis Institute of Music, which is fairly prestigious. Okay. But the other thing that's like really well known about him is that he had this like very cavernous and memorable and like velvety bass voice. Like people were very drawn in by this man's voice well who isn't drawn in by a bass voice am i right (laughs) all right (laughs) but it's it's true like there's this this so people were were very much drawn to him both as a composer but also as a performer so he gets this degree in piano and composition at the curtis school of music in 1963 and he then goes on to be a creative associate at suny buffalo center for the creative and performing arts where he was initially given a stipend but no teaching responsibilities which is kind of odd i have some questions about why that was my guess it is because julius eastman was an openly gay black man And he also represented a lot of this in his music. While he is in this partnership as a creative associate, he begins to write these intense, powerful, post-minimalist pieces, including probably one of his most famous works, Gay Gorilla. Uh, And one of the things you'll have to know about his works is that he frequently purposefully will misspell words or spell them differently homophonically. So Gorilla here is spelled like you would spell it for guerrilla warfare, not in the terms of the animal. Gotcha. Um, And we're going to talk about another piece later called Feminine, which is spelled F-E-M-E-N-I-N-E. So instead of the I. But these are purposeful spellings for a purpose. He ends up leaving after he gets in a fight with John Cage, who objected to Eastman's staging of his songbook. He later says that Eastman is closed in on homosexuality, and we know this because he has no other ideas. So that fight ends up being bad enough that Julius Eastman decides to leave the Creative Associates. But he continues to write, and write prolifically. And many of his pieces deal with race, which, when you think of, like, and you tell me, but when you think about minimalist pieces, you actually don't usually think of any kind of intense social subject matter. You think a lot about pure repetition and sound, but not a lot of necessary inherent or purposeful meaning. Mm -hmm. So... That really does set him apart from a lot of these other, and a lot of reason that he's considered a post-minimalist, is that his pieces have intense political and personal purpose. And one of the ways he would do that is he often would write for cello and piano in such a way that the cello was mimicking this very iconic bass voice, which I think is so cool. And I questioned once again, I was like, that sounds amazing. And I wonder why I, I don't wonder. I know why I haven't heard it. Yeah. Despite what many were describing as a significant and impressive body of work, Eastman was unable to find academic positions, and many of his works were lost when he was thrown out of his apartment for being unable to pay rent. No! So this is, once again, a man who had been working, like, even up to this point, he, 
like 1976, he is working with Pierre Boulez and participating in a performance of the Eight Songs for a Mad King at Lincoln Center. He was the first male vocalist in Meredith Monk's ensemble. And he also was working with Arthur Russell and conducting almost all of the orchestral recordings. And he was doing all of this major work. He was also working with his brother, who is a jazz, who is a jazz guitarist. <laughs> you know where his brother worked? He worked in Count Basie's orchestra. Oh. Right? So he's doing all of these pieces achieving like major works in in new york city and he can't pay rent he can't get an academic position because he's creating these intense political works because he is an openly gay black man at a time where you know it's not easy to live as a gay black man now but certainly in the 1960s to 1980s it was not and he ends up dying homeless in 1990 <gasps> most of his close friends yeah he was only 50 years old oh my god it was attributed as um, cardiac arrest. He was at the time dealing with mental health issues uh, and some possible drug abuse as well. But the, uh, the recorded death is uh, as cardiac arrest. And most people didn't know. Like even his close friends didn't know because he essentially just disappeared after he became homeless. He became very hard to find. Most people didn't know until his obituary was published eight months after the fact. And when other journalists after that obituary was published... They were contacting his friends to get interviews, and most of them, that was the first time they even knew he was dead. Wow. Because he had had a bit of a falling out with his family as well. And just, uh, it's an incredibly sad story. And it's not really until the 2000s that we even see, like, the beginnings of people starting to recognize his influence and the importance of his work in the larger category of minimalism. And a lot of we, what we have now is thanks to a woman named Mary Jane Leach, who was a colleague and a performer who had worked with Eastman in the 1980s. And she begins to reach out to people and start collecting. Because like I said, so much of his work was lost when he became homeless. So much of that just disappeared. Wow. So she began reaching out to people and collecting the pieces. And she put, she helped create like the first major release of his work, which I believe happened in about 2005. And it wasn't until 2016 that that piece I was talking about, Feminine, was released. And it's considered one of his pinnacle works. It's this intensely emotional piece. But it's actually missing its companion piece, Masculine, which we'll probably never have. It's probably gone forever because of that. Wow. And one of the articles I read, because most of the information I got has been from The New Yorker and The New York Times, who have published multiple articles about the rediscovery of Eastman's work and the reasons it was lost to history. Those are really good articles if you want more information. But they mentioned that part of the pleasure of Eastman's rediscovery has been the belated, deserving reinsertion of a black gay figure into music history. With additives slowly transforming repetitions at the heart of his major pieces, Eastman has a clear connection to the minimalist canon. He was known for like a really naturalistic repetition where pieces of the previous measure would make it into the next measure, but would slowly transform. Mm -hmm. That was kind of uh, his style. But even they mentioned that even in the early 1970s, well before many others, he was using those repetitions as a structure to contain improvisation as well as the rhythms and harmonies borrowed from pop. So he really was an early innovator in minimalism and deserves to be recognized as such. It's it's still pretty difficult to get a hold of a lot of his music. His estate is controlled by his brother, who is the jazz musician, the uh, jazz guitarist I mentioned earlier. And in a phone interview with one of the, the writers of these articles, he mentioned that he had recently finalized his brother's posthumous membership in ASCAP, which is, which is the music licensing agency. But, you know, they spent years trying to find his pieces. 
which are spread amongst musicians who he might have written for and people he performed with them. Like, it's a long project. And his brother has mentioned that he doubts a publisher would be interested in taking over that project and the kind of funds it would take to collect and recreate and perform those works. But for now, those uh, who are interested in performing his works do have to negotiate directly with his brother. But he, his brother has said, if you're interested in playing this music, just call me and we'll talk. I want the music to be heard, so I'm not going to be unreasonable. Which, in some ways, I think it's kind of good that there's someone kind of in control of the legacy and how it's presented. Yeah. Though I understand, like, the difficulty of getting a hold of a singular person to negotiate performances. There is a biography of Julius Eastman called Gay Gorilla, G-U-E-R-I-L-L-A, as I mentioned earlier, that you can read for more information. There are now pretty good recordings of those works, thanks to people like Mary Jane Leach. Um, so you can actually hear some of his music, and it is being performed and uh, more and more now. But it's another person who, you know, we hear about Terry Riley, we hear about John Cage, we hear about all these major figures, and yet here was this person among them, among people like Meredith Monk and Pierre Boulez, who, whose works are lost because, because they didn't fit in the category of acceptable people. And, and once again, a person who was just very committed to living their life openly uh, by the names of the pieces, you can tell that he had nothing to hide and he wanted to be ex accepted exactly as he was. But we have another really interesting figure who was living life really openly and, and proudly, what, in the early 1850s? <laughs> uh 1880s 1890s really well i mean she was born in like the 1860s i think but whatever yeah <laughs> doesn't matter but speaking on another person who just was out and proud long before their time we have dame ethel smith one of the reasons we love her is because she attained prominence as one of the most accomplished female composers in obviously a male dominated environment and was one of the main representatives of the suffragette movement um she so, was like not only am i gonna write music i'm also gonna vote <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah exactly uh, also just she's she has so many quotes she was just a very quotable person and yeah she's a spicy lady so in 1887 uh, smith entered the leipzig conservatory she only stayed for about a year because she became disenchanted with the tuition and staff. And if I have <laughs> ever heard a more realistic experience of music school, it's that. Uh, <laughs> she still stayed in Leipzig. Truly. Right. Smith basically took harmony and counterpoint lessons with Heinrich von Herzogenberg. And once again, I just have to pause. I do not mean to <laughs> poke fun at Heinrich, but Heinrich von Herzogenberg. Doesn't that sound like a fake name? It does seem fake. Doesn't yeah. that sound like you're in German 1 and you have to do like a class skit, right? Like that's what that is. If you're trying to crash a party and you're like, I'm actually German royalty. Yeah, exactly. Like I did like a full stop when I first read that. I was like, okay, seems, seems <laughs> sus, but... Seems, seems fake though. <laughs> but regardless, he was a real person who taught her harmony and counterpoint and basically during this period she meets many of the most significant composers of the day including none other than the love of my life johannes brahms also she meets dvorak she meets clara schumann who obviously is paving her own career at the time and she meets tchaikovsky 
And Tchaikovsky was actually especially encouraging, describing Smith in his memories as one of the few women composers whom one can seriously consider to be achieving something valuable in the field of musical creation. Um, So, I mean, I feel like if Tchaikovsky said anything nice about me, I would simply pass away and be so happy. That is still kind of like the compliment of being like, oh, you know, you're not like other girls. You're not like other women composers. <laughs> it's true. It's a little backhanded. But at the time... It is. <laughs> at the time. But Ethel spent several years kind of traveling across Europe. She was finding a good amount of success. And in 1890, she returned to England and made her debut as a composer of orchestral music with a serenade in D at the Crystal Palace Concerts. And her mass in D, which premiered in 18. 18- 93 brought her wide public recognition and basically from that point on as she's kind of gaining popularity with um you know public audiences from 1893 to 1910 she decides to primarily focus her time on composing opera specifically in 1898 her first opera fantasio was first performed in weimar Four years later, Der Walt was heard first in Berlin and then at the Royal Opera House in London. And this work would actually make her the first woman to have a work performed by the Metropolitan Opera in 1903. And it's definitely, we need to note that even though she was finding all this success because of the time period, she was really having to work to get these performance opportunities. A lot of blood, sweat, and tears to have her works performed. Um, And luckily... You know, they were performed throughout Europe and also in North America with, like, pretty good success. They maybe weren't, like, crazy popular. Yeah, just remember that, like, no other woman would really have another work at the Metropolitan Opera for almost 100 years. Yes, very true. There's another female librettist, but not another female composer, I think, until Missy Mazzoli. Yeah, so it's it's pretty crazy. So she's she's getting a good response, which for a woman at the time is awesome. And, you know, our girl is also an English suffragette, which like you're like, if she's already a female composer who's killing it, it's it just it's it's icing on the cake. She is truly kicking ass on multiple continents, (laughs) which is all we can ever hope for. (laughs) So in 1911 to 1913, Smith was closely involved with the English suffragette movement led by how would you pronounce that name? I'm fairly certain it's Emmeline Pankhurst. One of her compositions, The March of Women, was adapted as the anthem to the Women's Social and Political Union, and she was one of more than 100 feminists arrested for breaking windows in March 1912, which she served two months for. And uh, when her friend Thomas Beecham had paid her a visit, he found her directing a memorable performance of the March of Women sung by the fellow suffragettes in prison, which... Oh, hell yeah. Right? She's like, I'm a vote. You're going to throw me in jail. Doesn't matter. I'm still going to be making music. Have you heard my composition, by the way? Like, I love that. Yeah. And just to add even like, you know, a cherry on top of the icing on top of the already (laughs) beautiful decadent cake was that Smith, just being the badass that she was, was public about her nonconformist sexual identity at the time. And many of her romantic partners and crushes were on famous women, including a French empress and English modernist writer Virginia Woolf. Now, Virginia Woolf, we all know from English class. And while they perhaps had a little bit of a rocky start, Wolf and Smith actually became 
good friends and wolf said of smith that she is one of the race of pioneers of path makers she has gone before and felled trees and blasted rocks and built bridges and thus made a way for those who come after her i have no doubt that i owe a great deal to some mute and inglorious ethel smith and it's just very interesting she obviously had to work really really hard to put on a lot of her compositions and have them publicly performed and she quoted quote says i feel i must fight for my music because i want women to turn their minds to big and difficult jobs not to just go on hugging the shore afraid to put out to sea and this lady was just such a freaking badass i love her oh my gosh one of my favorite things about her too is that like one of the vi- one of the best pictures of her is her and her dog which is a uh, a mood i love it but she is she is just this unrepentant woman about what she wanted and who she wanted to be and the rights she wanted women to have um and the fact that she wanted women to achieve more and was going about proving that they could like i just she was walking the walk by all means and there's actually another quote by her that i would like to read if that's okay so in in 1892 there is a letter that she writes to her friend and librettist, Henry Brewster. And she wrote, I wonder why it is so much easier for me to love my own sex more passionately than yours. Uh, I can't make it out for I am a very healthy minded person. And I really, <laughs> I, I really like that quote because this is a time where homosexuality in any form is considered a mental illness. And here she is already pushing back against it and recognizing like, I don't have a mental health issue. I just simply am more attracted to women than I am to men. There's an idea that she may have had one or two male partners, but she was largely more than likely lesbian. But for people who grow up in certain times or even now in certain areas, like like I said, people still do sometimes view it as a mental health thing or as, you know, it's uh, a multitude of wrong ways. So I love that even so early on at a time where it would have been very difficult to view it that way, she was already shaking off this socialization. Very outspoken. Like I said, there's so many quotes that you can find out uh, or find from Oh, her she's that so quotable. She's so quotable. I'm, I swear the things that came out of her mouth. She also has, she, there are several like biographies about her that are definitely worth a read. Uh, she's thoroughly worth studying. And this is another person where, once again, I, I had heard of her, certainly, but nobody ever got into like what she was doing. Nobody told me, you know, that she was not only a suffragette, but dating other suffragettes and writing all this music that would help lead the suffragettes and the first composer to be the first woman composer to be performed at metropolitan opera house i mean once again what a cool history that we don't get to go into totally it's funny because a lot of composers come in and out of style so to speak and especially you know composers or artists that belong to the lgbtq plus community like are kind of not in the spotlight so it's really cool to see that in recent years there's a lot more being published about ethel smith there's a lot more recognition that she's gathering and it's really cool because she's a fascinating person yeah you know same thing with wendy carlos if i hadn't seen an article about her i never would have known so it's exciting to see people really branching out with with what we talk about in terms of our music history we also mentioned that we had some fun things that are going on in the world of opera to share and something that literally just came out like a week or so ago is a documentary called Sound of Identity, which is all about Lucia Lucas's major role in an opera house as Don Giovanni. Lucia Lucas, we talked a lot about in our last Pride episode, so you can go there if you'd like to find out more about her. But she is a transgender baritone. It's a really unique documentary covering just 
getting the role, it's interviews with the director, interviews with the team, and covering all of like Tulsa Opera's first major performance with a transgender singer. And actually, this isn't even just Tulsa. This is the first ever transgender woman performing an opera lead at a major U.S. company. Lucia Lucas is also just an amazing baritone. If you haven't ever heard her sing, I recommend going and listening to her sing some of the Don Giovanni arias. She's truly living my dream. (laughs) But this, it's pretty incredible because this uh, documentary has only just come out and I wasn't aware last year when we talked about her taking on the role at Tulsa Opera that they were even making a documentary. Yeah, we're going to have to schedule this for uh, like a little opera watch party this month. Yeah, I think it'll be a lot of fun. But you should be able to watch it now on Apple TV, Amazon, Google Play, Fandango Now, and pretty much any major streaming platform will probably have it, except for maybe Netflix. Netflix, get on it. Come on, Netflix. Come on. You're all about the documentaries. Yeah, and it's directed by James Kicklider, who has done some other documentaries about music as well. But it's very exciting to see someone actually, you know, after having talked about these previous figures who went unnoticed for a lot of their, not unnoticed, but undocumented in the way they deserved. It's very exciting to see active documentaries and representation being made at the time of creation. Totally. Yeah, I'm excited to see it. Sounds Yeah, cool. so keep an eye out for that because we will be doing a watch party with it this month. Yeah. And next up, we have some creative companies, some grassroots opera companies that should be on your radar. The first of which is Chamber Queer. Now, Chamber Queer is an LGBTQ plus chamber music organization based in Brooklyn, New York. And their mission is to program queer artists and composers, highlight historically underrepresented queer figures in classical music, and provide an inclusive and intersectional space in classical music for artists and audience alike. Founded in 2018 by Jules Bieber, Danielle, Buonaiuto, Brian Mummert, and Andrew Yee. Chamber Queer's first major event was Chamber Queer 2019, a three-day festival in Brooklyn during Pride Month. And the second annual festival, unfortunately, was canceled due to COVID-19. So instead, Chamber Queer hosted Chamber Queer in Teen, a 16-day festival that showcased the work of over 50 artists, all responding to the prompt, what does being a queer musician mean to you? And what's really cool is that all of the videos are available to stream on their website. And this is a really, really great way to educate yourself on the names of these up and coming queer artists in the young artist space. Obviously, a huge way of being an ally and advocate is knowing the people that are in the space that you are, you know, being an ally to. So it's a really, really great little resource to see, obviously, great music and kind of familiarize yourself with other young artists. It's a really cool group of people doing really awesome work so make sure to go and check them out and learn more about their artists yeah all the links will be in the show notes but you can find them at chamberqueer.org yeah and we'll also be throwing up links to things like the documentary and to these organizations on the discord as well yeah and then another kind of little grassroots operation is queer opera which is hosted through portland state university um so queer opera was founded in 2017 and queer opera is dedicated to providing a safe stage for lgbtq IA singers and allies to tell queer stories through the traditional genre of opera. And using con- unconventional casting methods, roles are matched with individuals based on how they identify rather than the gender of the role or their voice type, which I think is really, really neat. 
Queer Opera's week-long workshop in September provides an intensive opportunity for singers to explore roles that kind of more closely align with their own identities through opera scenes and art songs. They also um, present lectures and performances for various organizations, including NOA, Nats, the College Music Society, and other national and regional organizations. And their whole thing is that through opera, art song, and chamber music, queer opera is able to present new vibrant works for the stage, as well as putting a queer twist on the classics. So hopefully they're looking towards doing full-fledged productions in addition to their September workshops. And the founder of artistic director is Chuck Dillard and Rebecca Herman serves as stage director. And anybody kind of in that Portland State area, queer opera actually has auditions open from June 13th to the 19th for their opera scenes and art song recital. So if you're in that in that area, you can definitely check that out and think about applying. The workshop's going to be held in person at Portland State University, and they're going to have all their COVID safety protocols. But I think that that's pretty cool. I was excited when I saw that they had auditions coming up. Yeah, it's just nice to know that things are opening up again and to know that we're going to see some really amazing live performances soon. Totally. And all you need to, to audition is an opera aria, an art song and a little short essay on why you want to join them. And you can just upload those videos to YouTube and send them a link. Easy peasy. So if you're interested in finding that information, you can check out queeropera.org. So that kind of concludes our Pride episode. It's amazing to know both historically the people who have been paving paths in opera and in music for a very long time recognized and unrecognized but it's also exciting to talk about the people who are paving paths right now for people to be themselves and be with the people they love uh, no matter where they are and it's super important because those people make it easier for us all to represent ourselves exactly as we are So a happy pride to everybody out there. Obviously, we cannot cover everything in this episode because we've only got so much time, but we will be doing some very interesting and fun minisodes covering more people and shows and things and talking about them. And if you'd like to hear those, you can find us over on Patreon. Our minisodes are available at our $2 level, which is super exciting. We'll be posting more information and links from this episode, as well as talking about our watch parties and all of our events on our Discord, which you can get through through our Instagram bio. And if you guys have any musicians you'd like to hear us cover or anything that you'd like to talk to us about, our DMs are always open. You can especially find us on Instagram. We're super talkative there. We're very active. Um, But you can also find us on Twitter and Facebook where we will also get to you as quickly as we can. Or you can contact us through our website, opera-offstage.com. And we will see you guys next week. Bye. Bye.